So uh, we'll be talking about communion, so I thought we'll just celebrate communion. Each week we're in this passage. But um, today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. And you can follow along in your Bibles as I read the text for us. We won't be getting through all of this this morning, just up to about chapter, or verse 22. Um, verse 17, but in the following instructions I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it, in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Father, we ask you to bless this word to our hearts as we look at the first um, several verses of this passage, Lord, that you would apply it and help it to be practical to us. As a local church, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, The local church has instructions from Paul and examples from Christ concerning what we call two ordinances. um, Baptism being one and communion being the other one. Uh, Ordinances that those who follow Christ, those who believe in his name, are to follow Faithfully. That's what the Bible indicates. Uh, Jesus commanded his disciples in Matthew 28, you know this verse, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the indication is that if you're a disciple of Christ, you should be baptized. That's a basic instruction. That's the first really act of obedience as a new believer in Christ. And today we do it a little differently than they did back then. Back then, they'd go to the ocean or they'd go to the local river and, and probably a crowd would um, gather 
thinking, oh, there's one of those crazy Christians again getting baptized. Let's watch. And as they're watching, the person would get up and they'd share their testimony about how they're a new person in Christ and um, they're doing this to follow Christ in the waters of baptism and they're leaving their old life behind. They're following Christ with a new life. And it really set them up for a lot of pain and agony in society because if you were identifying with Christ back then, depending on what group you came from, usually you were... um, talk about social distancing, they would just cut you out of their little social club. So if you owned a business and you came to Christ, a lot of people would say, we're not going to go there anymore. That's one of those crazy Christians. And you would potentially lose business over your commitment to Christ. You could lose family and friends. People were put out of families when they would come to Christ. So it was a significant statement of your faith, your newfound faith in Christ that you were making before the public, before those who gathered, before other believers. And we do the same thing here when someone wants to be baptized after they've uh, professed Christ and followed Christ and become a disciple of Christ. Um, We bring them up here. We put them through the back door. There's a nice hot tub here filled with nice hot water. And we have you come down. And one thing we ask everybody who is baptized in our church is that they would be willing to at least write out their testimony. And then hopefully they can read the written copy of their testimony from the waters of baptism before they're baptized. And that's signifying to everybody that's watching this, wow, this person has had a change. This person is different now. They're making a commitment to Christ. And it's really a form of accountability to that person and to the church. And so uh, that's the ordinance of baptism. You don't get any more saved by being baptized. It doesn't make you any more of a Christian. You think of the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized. But the Lord still promised him heaven because he was, what? Willing to forsake his life and follow Christ, even though he was moments from his own death. So that points out a couple things, that baptism isn't needed for salvation, but it is needed if you want to be obedient to the call of Christ upon your life. Uh, And it also points out that it's never too late for someone to come to Christ, right? Some of you have been praying for your family members for years, and you think, wow, they'll never come to Christ. Don't ever stop praying. Don't ever stop sharing Christ with them as the Lord opens up doors. Because I always think of the thief on the cross. You know, it could be somebody who's in a hospital bed, and their, their last breath is crying out to God for salvation because they've heard the gospel message by someone who's been faithful to share it with them. And the other ordinance that we'll be talking about this morning is communion. And the Lord instituted that, and we'll be talking about that. But those are two ordinances that we um, celebrate in most Protestant churches. Now, I came out of the Catholic Church, and we called these things sacraments. And some people, even in the Protestant Church, refer to them as sacraments. And as a former Catholic, that kind of rubs me the wrong way, so I don't call them sacraments. Um, But the term sacrament usually refers to a rite of passage, you might say, through which God's grace is doled out or dished out to you. So, you know, as 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 a Catholic, I remember growing up in the Catholic Church, there were seven sacraments. There was the sacrament of baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, and anointing of the sick. And depending on which sacrament you went through, you got a little more of God's grace each time you did it. That's why in the Catholic Church, what do they do? They baptize who? They baptize babies. All right? 
Um, there's no scriptural evidence of babies or infants ever being baptized in the New Testament. It was always an adult or someone who was at least able to profess their faith in Christ because it's not a work of grace. You don't get any more saved by being baptized. It's like you don't get any more saved by taking of the juice and the cracker here this morning. And so an ordinance, on the other hand, an ordinance can be defined, really think of it this way, as a God-ordained ceremony or a God-ordained remembrance that he set up for us. Um, So sacrament usually is thought of as something that God's grace flows to the individual through. But we know that we have accessed all the grace that there is in Christ Jesus, right? We don't need more grace than what God has given to us through Christ. And so we need to be reminded of that, that we don't get in the the thought pattern of thinking that somehow making you or being baptized makes you more holy or taking communion makes you more holy. No, you're set apart onto God if you've trusted Christ for your salvation. There's no more saving that needs to be done. As a matter of fact, Jesus saved you as far as you're going to be saved on the cross because at the end when he paid the debt of your sin, he said what? It is finished. There's nothing more to be done. And so... Uh, We don't have an altar here. We don't have to sacrifice anything on an altar to appease God so he will give us his grace because Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. Now, turning our mindset to communion itself, you remember it was on the night of his last Passover, Christ's last Passover with his disciples. It was during that time they were having the Passover meal. He actually initiated the first communion. And we read about that in the Gospels. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives his testimony of that. And we can call it the communion or the Lord's Supper, um, as it's been known. But he told the disciples during that meal that he was having with them, when he kind of transitioned into making it a communion, something that was to be remembered, Uh, He really wanted them to continue the ordinance of communion as a remembrance of what he has done for them until he comes back. And some people say, well, should you do communion every week? You can. You could do it every day. It says in the New Testament they, they did it daily. They went house to house breaking your bread. You know, there's no limit. You don't have to do it on the first Sunday of, of every month like our church has it scheduled just because we, that's what we do. But you can have it you know, in the Sunday service, you could have it on a Wednesday time, you could have it wherever you want, really. But it's the idea that you're remembering the death of Christ. And even though Paul didn't baptize a lot of the believers here in Corinth, he told us that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, he said, hey, I didn't baptize a lot of you folks. But he still affirmed baptism. And he affirmed it as a non-optional act of obedience to the Lord. And it's the same thing when it comes to communion. You know, the, the, the present language makes it clear that the, the Corinthians regularly celebrated the Lord's Supper. It wasn't just a once-a-month thing. And obviously, Paul, as their founding pastor, probably participated and led that time with these believers many times. He was there some 18 months as their founding pastor and teacher. Um, And it was not incidental, really, that Christ began communion, initiated communion, during the Passover meal. 
Because we know from the Old Testament what the Passover means to uh, the Jewish faith. God instituted the Passover when he delivered them from what? From 400 years of bondage in Egypt. And the meal celebrated the, remember the death angel that was going to go out and, and, and slaughter those who did not put um, the, the blood of the, the sacrifice over the doorpost and the lentil with the lamb's blood. If it wasn't there, someone in their house died, child. And so the lamb itself was roasted and it was eaten and it was a, a meal that they had with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and all this stuff. It's, it's back in Exodus chapter 12. You can read that on your own. We don't have time this morning, but I'll just read one verse out of there. It says, now this, is, this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations are you to celebrate it as a permanent, and he uses the word ordinance, which is kind of interesting. That's in Exodus chapter uh, 12. And throughout our history, this is what Israel has done. The Jews have celebrated this meal. It's probably one of the, the most important, holiest Jewish feasts that there is, the Passover meal. Well, he took that very special meal and he transformed it, Christ did, into what we know as communion. He transformed it into something that was infinitely greater. Um, And he really was showing them that the Passover meal was just a foreshadow of what I'm going to do for you when I die and pay for your sins. And so when we celebrate communion together, when we eat the bread and drink the juice, we remember the spiritual and remember the eternal redemption that, that Christ purchased for us on the cross through his body as a, as a sacrifice. And even though that first Passover was just temporary, it was celebrated in a temporary way, um, the physical deliverance of the Old Testament, that's what it was representing. The Lord's Supper, our communion, the one we celebrate in the New Testament, is a permanent and a spiritual deliverance that that Old Testament sacrifice could never give. And so it's a lot to be um, celebrated. And that's what he says in Luke 22. He says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So he reminds us that, you know what, the reason you do this is to take you back to the cross. We sang about the old rugged cross. That's why that emblem is such an important thing in Christianity. You notice our cross does not have anyone hanging on it. There's no Jesus on the cross. He's not on the cross anymore. He was taken down from the cross. It's finished. He's never to be on the cross again. And it's unfortunate that some churches still have Jesus hanging there on the cross. Uh, We don't serve a cross with Christ hanging on it. He's no longer there. Amen? He was buried and he's resurrected. We serve a risen Christ. But we see that these ordinances were practiced in the New Testament church and there was several things that made up a New Testament church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we're reminded of them. He, he reminds us, and it, it tells us basically that they went um, house to house and they, they, they performed things that were, um, they were under the obedience of the apostles' teaching was one thing. They gathered together and they were taught by an apostle. Um, they also had fellowship you know, that's one thing that I think this virus, this pandemic, has really 
affected the church. Because, and I knew it, as soon as they put that rule in, well, the churches can't meet, I thought, boy, I hope, and my prayer was, each Sunday was, I hope people are not growing comfortable with this. Um, I hope people are not growing comfortable with the fact that you can sit at home in your pajamas with your latte and your, you know, a muffin and turn on the pastor on TV or a computer and just relax there. You don't have to deal with anybody. It's so comforting. To be honest with you, I kind of, you know, after a couple of weeks, I was like, it was kind of nice. <laughs> you know, I mean, but that's just my personality. But, you know, that's, that's something to be feared. We should desire fellowship as a church. And it's unfortunate that there's a lot of churches that still aren't meeting today. You know, you cannot fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ by staring at a computer screen or a TV screen at home. It's impossible. So you're knocking that quarter of what the New Testament church did out of the formula for your spiritual edification and growth each week because it's not going to happen. And I know they're, they're really good at communication, and I know that even we have churches today that they don't even have a real pastor there. They put up a video screen, and it's streamed in from somewhere else. That's, that's just not the way it was intended to be. I'm all for high-tech stuff and everything, but we have to be careful. You know, Even companies now, and some of you work for some of these companies, they're realizing, you know what? This isn't half bad. Our employees don't have to commute. They can still do their work at home. Why are we paying for all this rent? Or why are we paying you know, for all this property? And there are companies even, you know, they could have opened up companies yesterday and they would have said, no, just keep on staying home. We're not opening up the campus. Why? Because they're saving a ton of money. And they're realizing that you may not have to go to a building to fulfill your job obligations. You can just do it in the comfort of your own home. Now, some of you may struggle with that. If you have young ones, you're probably thinking, I wish they would open up the workplace so I can get out of here. But, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there, right? I mean, and, and we don't want the church to come to that conclusion. We don't ever want to grow comfortable not fellowshipping with one another. Well, the f- third thing he says there is breaking of bread in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Not only teaching, fellowship, but breaking of bread, which was referenced to the communion time. They would usually have a meal together, but part of that meal was the remembrance of the communion time. And then, obviously, prayer. Prayer is to be an essential part of any New Testament church. You know, I'm so thankful for our ladies who meet each Thursday morning for prayer. They're praying for you. They're praying for me. They're praying for the church. They're praying for needs in our body. They're praying for our missionaries. And they're doing it faithfully every Thursday morning. Now they're doing it over Zoom, but they used to meet in the fellowship hall. And we have a prayer meeting on Sunday mornings that meets at, I think it's 945, over in the, the classroom or the fellowship hall. And, you know, it's important that we understand that prayer um, has a purpose. And there's, there's a significant um, thing that happens when we come to the Lord and being dependent upon him. Well, today, as we look at this guidance concerning communion, we just want to work through the first couple verses here. But there was many uh, problems in the Corinthian church, and we've talked about them. They, they worshiped people. You know, they were followers of Paul or Apollos or whatever. They had that issue going on. They had issues going on with um, quarreling and having problems eating meat that was sacrificed to idols and thinking people that did that were less holy and so forth. 
Um, they had a lot of issues. They were observing the Lord's table, but they weren't doing it the way they should have been. So Paul had to give them some guidelines. And the first thing we see here is the perversion that they made of the Lord's table. Look at verse 17. It says, but in following instructions, I do not commend you. Remember, Paul commended them several times. He, he said, hey, you're doing what I asked you to do. You're trying to do your best. But here he says, I'm not going to commend you in this. This is a very serious matter. And so he draws their attention to communion time. And when he says they're following instructions, that's really a word that has the idea, it's a, it's a military term, and it's a command. See, Paul's not just pulling them close and saying, hey, you know, I got some helpful hints for you. you know, no, he's not saying that. I got some nice suggestions I'd like to make. No, it basically has the idea of a charge or an order that's meant to pass along from one to another. And it was used of a military commander when he would tell his subordinates, you go take that hill. They didn't have any choice. They went and they took the hill. Why? Because they were given the order. Uh, Paul made it clear that what he was about to say to them was not just personal advice. He wasn't giving them a helpful hint here. He was giving them apostolic instruction that they were commanded to accept and follow and obey if they were going to be followers of Christ. As a matter of fact, it's very clear when you read the text. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. In other words, I'm not, I'm not in favor of what's going on here. Somebody wrote him a letter and told him a bunch of stuff about these people. Because he wasn't there, remember? He was their pastor for 18 months and he left. And Paulus took over. Well, someone wrote him a letter and said, Hey, Paul, the church you founded in Corinth, there's, there's some major things going wrong there. You might want to address this. He says, I don't commend you in what I've heard. He says, but when you come together, look at this. It is not for the better, but for the worse. So he's saying, yeah, you're, you're meeting as a church. But you know what? I wish you weren't. I wish you weren't. Why? Because their motives were all messed up. They came together for not the right purposes. I mean, it would have been much better for those Corinthians never to have had any kind of meal, never to have gone after the, the Lord's table or communion. Why? Because they were abusing him. They were coming with unclean hearts. They came together, not for better, Paul says, but for the worse. That word worse has a, an in, in, implication of uh, moral evil. There was something bad going on here. And instead of celebrating this event in the Corinthian church, Paul's saying, hey, I'm not going to celebrate this. Because instead of times of loving fellowship that we're coming together for or, or spiritual enrichment, Basically, what happened is it devolved into this selfish indulgence. They would shame the poor brothers and sisters in the church. They were mocking the Lord's sacrificial death. They were really scandalizing the church before the unbelieving world around them in Corinth. I mean, people were looking at that church going, man, you hear what happened early yesterday? They had one of those love feasts, like communion thing. Man, there was all kinds of stuff going on there. 
And see, it wasn't uncommon for drunkenness and immorality. I mean, we can't even conceive of that, right? But that's what was going on. And he calls the Corinthian believers there to sanctify, to set apart their observance of the Lord's Supper. And he discusses some of their perversions here. First of all, they met in their own little groups in verse 18. It says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, this is, he's saying basically the most important things you have to understand is you're the church. Who's the church? The church means called out assembly, right? It doesn't mean a holy assembly. There's many times in the New Testament where the word ecclesia, which is the original language there for church, would mean a called out congregation or assembly of Jews or whoever. It could be, you know what, you could call a, a, a riot a church because it's a called out assembly of people. So there's no holiness to the word. But when it's speaking of the called out church of Christ, okay, it's in the New Testament, it's never used of a building. You know, we refer to this as the church, right? Where are you going this morning? I'm going to church. It's never referred to as a building. It's never even referred to as a meeting place in the New Testament. You don't have to go to a certain place to have a church. You know, this could all go away. If this burned down tonight and we had nowhere to meet, we could meet in a cow pasture. We could meet in a cornfield. It doesn't matter. We could meet in a parking lot. That's the church. Why? Because the church is made up of what? The church is made up of believers. The church is made up of those who God has elected before the foundation of the world to come to Christ. And when they come together as a unit, they're called, they're referred to as the church. And so he reminds them, when you come together as a church, he doesn't say you're coming together as a family. He doesn't say you're coming together as a bunch of friends. You're coming together as a church. And there should be something of reverence to that when we come together as a church. Because We're representing Christ to one another and to the community around us. But look at what he says in verse 18. He says, first of all, I hear that there are divisions among you. (laughs) That word division there is schisma in the original language. It's used about eight and a half times here. Eight times, eight, nine times, whatever, depending on your translation. It refers to tearing or cutting. That's, That's the idea. And... When you look at the Corinthian church, apparently they could not agree on anything. They fought over everything. And they didn't serve each other. They didn't care about anybody but themselves. When they came to church, it was me, myself, and I. That was it. And you hear of stories of churches like that, you know, where the church divides over the color of the, 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 the carpet on the podium or, you know, the color of the fabric on the chairs, and the whole church divides over. It's like... How could you be so crazy to do something like that? Or nowadays, there's a lot of division going on over music styles. So a lot of churches will have multiple services, and every service is a different style. You got the country and western service, you got the pop service, you got the rap service, and then you got the traditional service for all the old fogies that like hymns. You know, that's how they view it. You don't see that in the New Testament anywhere. You know, that's just appealing to people's flesh. See, if we're so closed-minded, when we come together as a church, we're focused on what song being sung or what color the carpet is, we got a problem. 
So instead of sharing together in fellowship and worship, what would they do? They would spend their time together selfishly indulging, arguing, disputing. And we see that because Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, hey, I would pray, I appeal to you, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. And that gives us indication that they weren't. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, the next chapter when we get in there. We've all been waiting for chapter 12, spiritual gifts. We're finally getting there. But he says in verse 25, Paul says that there may be no division in the body. That's the word, schisma. But that the members may have the same care for one another. It's also used over in John chapter 10, the gospel of John chapter 10. In verse 19, he says, There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. The words of Christ caused a division. So it has the idea that this, these divisions were happening in the Corinthian church because of bad reasons. Sometimes there's divisions that happen because of good reasons. Some people say, well, when do you know it's time to leave a church? I think it's time to leave a church when the pastor no longer teaches the Bible and they don't affirm who Christ is. You know, if they don't have a high view of God's word and they don't have a high view of Christ, then they don't have a high view of the church. If they're just there every Sunday to entertain you, move on. But you don't leave because the color, color of the carpet or some certain song was sung. or that's, that's the wrong reasons. You should be committed to your local church. So he adds here at the end of that verse, look at what he says. There's divisions among you. There's, and I, he says, I believe it in part. What's he doing? He, Paul's just being nice. He's being gracious. Remember, he hadn't confronted them yet face to face. How do you hear this? Hearsay. He, somebody sent him a letter. And so he's hearing these bad things about it, about the Corinthian church, and the reports would not have been hard to believe because he knows these people better than anybody. So I'm sure he had some indication in his heart, while well, things are going awry there in the Corinthian church, I better write him a letter. And so Paul began this letter by strongly rebuking them for their divisions back in chapter 1 based upon their party loyalties. He says, Each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And then he asks the question, is Christ divided? Is the church of Christ caused to division? No, it's not. But we see over and over again, even back in verse, um, uh, verse, I think it's verse 11, the, the one chapter there, it says those divisions inevitably ended in quarrels. You know, when they would, they, would, they would get in arguments about these things. And so the, the believers were being divided spiritually that way. They were divided socially. Um, those who were well off in the church, those who were rich, apparently brought their own food to their little feast they were having every week. You know, it wasn't, you know, some churches have a potluck, Right? What's that mean? Everybody brings whatever they got. Just bring whatever you got. There'll be enough food for everybody. Um, That's one thing, you know, a lot of us miss every week is having that meal together, having that fellowship time after the church, after service is over, over in the fellowship hall. And hopefully we'll be able to do that again soon. But see, they would do that here. 
But what would happen is the rich people would get there early and bring all their really, really good food, and wine, whatever. Then they'd just sit down and gorge themselves. They wouldn't wait for anybody else to get there. It'd be like you bringing a nice big apple pie or something for the fellowship time afterwards. And we all know you brought it and we're waiting, anticipating, man, I wish this pastor would shut up so we can go get a piece of that apple pie. And you walk over there and there's the person that brought it, just got a big, the pie's right in front of them. They're just scooping it into their mouth. You'd be like, whoa, what a pig. That's what they did. Literally, in the Corinthian church. It was so bad, this, this meal they had. I, I read this last week. One historian says that they would actually have buckets next to the table. Because they would eat so much, they would have to vomit. Purge is a good word, yeah. And then they would continue eating. And then you got the poor guy there on the end. You know, Maybe he brought a... a, a a bunch of grapes or something from a tree he picked on the, or from a vine he picked on the way. That's all he could afford. And they're not giving him anything. See, that was the picture that was painted for Paul. And that's what was going on here. And they had a real problem. They came so far from what Acts chapter 2, verse 44 says, right? Where it says, the church had all things in common, right? They shared with all as anyone might have need. It didn't matter what your social status was. It didn't matter whether you were rich or poor. It didn't matter where you sat and what table you sat or who you were sitting with. They shared with everybody. And that's what the first Christians did in Jerusalem. But here, this Corinthian upper class disdained even the thought of sharing any of their food with the less fortunate brothers or sisters. It was literally every person for themselves. Like I said, me, myself, and I. It was no we. Well, look at what he says in verse 19. He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. This is not the same word that we just read. It's not a a division. What's interesting is where he says there, there must be. See that? What he's saying is this is necessary. This is not optional. It denotes necessity or compulsion. So what is Paul trying to communicate here? That same word, it's just one word in the original language, by the way, was used in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Remember when they got in trouble with the Sanhedrin preaching? Peter and the other apostles? And they went before, and the Sanhedrin said, you know what, you're not allowed to preach anymore, sorry. And what did they say? We must obey God rather than men. It's the same word. We must do this. There's not an option here. We can't change this. And it's often used in the New Testament to represent something that's associated with a divine necessity. Jesus used the same word, we must, or I must, when he talked about his own crucifixion. I must go to the cross. It's not an option, Peter. You and nobody else is going to stand in my way. And also, the Son of Man must be resurrected. He even used it in Matthew 18, talking about stumbling blocks. In verse 7, he says, For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Same idea. They're going to come. You can't stop it. And so he points out here that what he's talking about is going to happen. Then he mentions this word factions. Factions. It's used nine sometimes in the New Testament. It's the original word 
heresis. We get the word heresy from that word. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean the same. <laughs> uh, it means more of a, a party or a sect or a faction. It's not necessarily referring to someone who, what we think of teaching heresies. It's not really referring to that. It's, now that can, it's, it's, call, it's really speaking of the divisions that are caused by people who teach heresies, you might put it that way. Because when people come into a church and start to teach something that's heretical, what happens? They seek to get people on their side, right? So they're, they're causing a little faction within the church, and it's causing division and, and things like that. But it comes out of that, that same idea. It's used in Galatians chapter 19 when he gives a list of the fruit of the flesh. He says, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. There's the same word. There it's translated divisions in the ESV. But it's the word sect or groups. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, listen, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. All right, what are they doing? They're bringing in teachings that's causing a division in the body of Christ. Or in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, here the apostles were arrested and freed. It says, but the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, that word party or sect, it's the same word, a faction. It's also used of the Jerusalem council. But some who belonged, in Acts chapter 15, verse 5, it says, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, the party of the Pharisees, the sect of the Pharisees. It's even used in Acts chapter 24, verse 5. And there, it's talking about a group of Jews who came to Christ, Messianic Jews. And it says, uh, these Jews throughout the world, um, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So he says, yeah, there's going to be sects among you. There's going to be factions among you. That's kind of clear. But he said there's a reason for it. He says in order that, purpose clause there, who are those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Those who are genuine, that refers to those who have passed the test. You know, sometimes you don't appreciate something good, right, until you've had something bad, <laughs> You know, I mean, that's how it is. You go out to eat, right? And sometimes you order a meal. And if you've never had any good food before, well, whatever you have is probably going to be good. But if you've had really good food, and the food you're eating currently is not good, you're going to say, wow, this is not good. What are you comparing it to? You're comparing it to something that was genuinely good. The term was used of precious metals, tried in fire, proved to be pure. See, church division is ungodly and sinful as it is. God still uses it in his sovereign plan. He uses it to prove those who are faithful. Sometimes when churches divide and there's divisions, there's what? There's a group that's left behind, right? And the group that's left behind, what are they? They're the ones that are faithful. They're faithful to the calling that God has upon their lives. They're being separated out as pure gold from the dross. Evil helps manifest good. 
you know, we're a small church. People come and go all the time. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes, you know, people move, and boy, they're a real faithful family, and your heart breaks, and you think, wow, you know, I wish they wouldn't have moved. And I'll be honest, sometimes people move, and they leave, and it's like good riddance. You know, I love you. God bless you. Hope you find another church. Can't leave soon enough. Why? Because they're not genuine. They're not really here. Uh, Trouble in the church creates a situation in which true spiritual strength, wisdom, and leadership can be seen and can be manifested. And so it's, it's important that we understand that. And in every congregation of believers... God has his approved people in whom he entrusts the work of his church. And usually they're brought about through adversity and hardship, but you know what? They're there. They've, they've tried. They've trued. They stayed the course. They passed the test. I mean, a lot of times the reason pastors and missionaries and other people are leaving ministry is they just, either they're not called or they're just uh, not approved. You know, they're, they're unwilling to have that stick to that it takes sometimes. And that's what James refers to in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, there's the idea, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So factions are not merely disruptive, they are destructive as well, but God still uses them. Um, Now, when he says here in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. Um, We may be sure that the breaking of bread obviously was part of their frequent celebration of the Lord's death with the bread and the cup and all that, Um, but it wasn't just done, like I said before, once a month or whatever. It was done pretty much daily. The early church developed uh, special fellowship meals, you might call them. And they would come together, and the body of Christ would meet together. Uh, Jude 12 uh, refers to them as love feasts. And they would come together, and part of that was the observance of communion. Hey, we're all here as the church. Let's observe you know, the, the death of Christ as well and celebrate that. And so the, they, they really stressed a, a very heavily fellowship and mutual caring for believers and and that sort of thing. And it usually led to this big, you know, feast and meal that they would have. Well, unfortunately, what happens is some didn't follow this custom. And their meals turned into this gluttonous, drunken, uh, just mess. And that's what happened in Corinth. And the, the meal was connected to the bread and the cup, and it was basically just desecrating the communion time. And so when he says here, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The focal point of this evil was the Lord's Supper. They were doing things around the Lord's Supper that you would never even consider doing. Uh, that word supper, by the way, is just the word used for an evening meal. And they put lords in front of it because it gives it greater significance. It was a genuine meal. They would gather together. And what happened is it got so bad at one point 
they said, we're not going to do these meals together because you got these drunken rivalries going on and then we're having communion time together. That, that shouldn't be right. And they, they wouldn't share with anybody. This is the second problem they had. They wouldn't share with anyone. In verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I mean, can you imagine walking into a church on a Sunday morning, they're having communion, everybody's drunk. And you just got a mess of food everywhere. I mean, that's basically what was going on. And Paul says, what, do you not have houses and to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? In other words, you're sitting over there feeding your face, purging yourself and eating more, and you have this poor brother over here who has nothing to eat. He says, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? I'm not going to commend you in this. So the poor believers came expecting to maybe get some food that these richer people would bring, but they, they pushed them away. And so it was just, it was not a Christ-honoring attitude that was going on. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, it talks about the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Paul was trying to communicate to them, look, you got this all wrong. You need to come together as a church. And that's why he just points out there in verse 22, it's like he lost his temper and just started raging at them. He said, are you actually trying to destroy the fellowship by despising the church? Are you, are you so selfish that you're humiliating these poor people that don't have anything? It's just unfortunate that this turned into it, what it turned into. And, and they could not show any love at all. Why even have this feast called the love feast? Why would you do this? Sometimes our sin blinds us to the reality of how practical you know, the fix is. And when Paul says, you know what, you're not going to get any approval from me in this. And that's the thing we need to be reminded of. Christians' attitudes and motives should be pure at all times. We're called to be filled with the Spirit, not the flesh. Now, we don't always own up to that. Obviously, we fail, we sin. That's where we cry out to the Lord, forgive me. But at the same time, that should be our goal. And when believers come to the Lord's table, when we share the bread and the cup, it's absolutely necessary that we leave any sin in our life at the cross. That's why the Bible indicates that we are to examine ourselves when we partake of these elements. It's not just a time you get together and, you know, drink a thing of juice and eat a cracker. And yet, so many times, that's what has happened. You know, it's, it's absolutely necessary that all the bitterness, all the racial or sexual prejudice, all the class pride, everything, any feeling of superiority goes out the door. You confess it. That's why we're observing the Lord's table. That's why we come together as a church and, and observe this ordinance so that we can examine ourselves. That's part of it. We want to use it as a unifying time in our body, not a time of divisiveness. And so 
as we prepare our hearts for the table this morning. I want you to know if you're visiting here this morning, that's fine. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're welcome to participate. There's some elements there on the back table as well as up here. And we're, we're going to be singing a couple songs first. So if you need uh, communion juice, um, you just pull the seal off the top of that, and that's the cracker, and then one seal down is the juice. Be careful when you take that seal off. It can spill, so you might want to hold it over your hand. But let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to uh, bless our time. Father, we thank you for this message this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided um, for us through Christ, and we don't have to work anymore for our salvation, that you have freely given to us all things in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we remember this time this morning as our communion time. Lord, we thank you that we're in a church that does observe communion, that we do want to remember the death of your son, the resurrection of your son. And Lord, we we thank you uh, for the gift of salvation that comes through his sacrifice. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts for this communion time, I pray that we would just use this time as a time of self-reflection, that we would look into our own hearts. Is there something that needs to be confessed and forgiven, Lord, we just pray that you would give us the wisdom to just uh, leave that at the cross, to cry out to you. Lord, your word is very clear that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And maybe there's someone here today, physically or even listening to the live stream, who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, we know that this table means nothing for those who are outside of Christ. But it's never too late to become part of the body of Christ. And that's done through prayer. It's done through coming before a holy God, recognizing your own sinful state and crying out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, Lord, from my sin. I believe that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to this earth and lived a perfect life and died a cruel death on a cross, but then was buried and was raised to newness of life. Lord, I believe that, and I want to commit my life to Christ. That's a prayer that God will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. He'll save you. He'll make you his own child. He'll release you from the burden of sin that you've been carrying. And then, too, you can celebrate with the church at the communion table. And, Father, we just pray that you would bless this time in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.